Hello, everyone, and welcome to Operant Innovations Podcast. This is Ari and my co-host, Kira Flynn. And today we're going to be talking to you a little bit about cultural humility and as some call it cultural competence within behavior analysis, specifically focusing on LGBTQ plus issues as we are continuing our Pride Month series. So before we get into really the details here, Kira, can you tell me what is cultural competence or cultural humility? Yes, yes, I can. Um, So before I start with this quote, I do want to say that we will be referencing some texts throughout this podcast. And if it's a direct quote, that will be referenced while we are speaking, but those will also be listed in the bio for our listeners to look at while they are listening or after. So just to get that out of the way. Um, so from right 2019, um, they stated that cultural humility is a framework used by other professional disciplines to address both institutional and individual behavior that contributes to the power imbalance, the marginalization of communities and disparities in health access and outcomes. Um, And I think that is a really good definition to go off of and to start conversation about cultural humility and cultural competence. And I also have um, some little blurps about cultural competence and then Ari, you and I can kind of discuss this. So I look at it as being aware of your own cultural beliefs and your values, but also knowing how those may differ from other cultures' beliefs and values. Um, Also, learning about different cultures that you may interact with, and even those that you may not interact with, uh, but also taking it a step further and uh, like truly respecting those cultures and accepting them. And then I think a big piece to cultural competence and humility is continuing to educate yourself uh, and educate others and learn about new beliefs and values of cultures as they may pop up while you're going about your life in this big, gigantic world that we live in. So that's kind of what I think um, Ari, do you have additional points on cultural competence or humility? Yeah, so that is an, an awesome definition. Uh, thank you for giving that in your own perspective. I really love how you bring up kind of the idea about continuing to learn as an ongoing process. I think that one point that has been brought up and discussed within the field as of late regarding, you know, cultural humility and cultural competence is, is there ever really a stopping point in which someone can say, okay, I am, you know, culturally competent. And so I really do like this framework of cultural humility because I think it emphasizes more heavily the idea that we're never going to reach a point of 
you know, completed confidence regarding any culture that we may interact with in our work as, you know, clinicians, practitioners, researchers, and that we need to possess the humility to realize our learning history is going to lead us to have different perspectives than people from a variety of different cultures that we may need to work with on, you know, complicated behavior change issues and be able to engage in the nuance and context that's required to really adequately help and serve people from a variety of different backgrounds. Um, So I really do like that point. And I think that it is really important to be able to engage in that perspective taking skill, um, both as a behavior analyst and to really cultivate that perspective taking in our, you know, supervisees, um, in the behaviors that we're targeting within organizations and looking for organizational change, as well as in our programming to really be able to recognize the fact that bias and having an, you know, implicit bias is kind of an unavoidable aspect of humanity. You know, Um, we're not going to be able to have the learning history of every community in the world. And so to be able to be humble enough to recognize that we are going to have biases and to actively take accountability for identifying what those biases are so that we don't enact harm against others with our, you know, observable behavior or our verbal behavior or in our interpersonal relationships is really important. Um, So I guess as we continue this conversation, I really think um, it can be difficult to translate this sort of general discussion-based topics. As we all know, behavior analysts have an ethical obligation to take cultural humility and body cultural humility and take different cultural values into consideration in our programming and in our practice. But translating that into what that actually looks like and what behaviors we engage in can be more difficult. So, Kira, what do you think embodying cultural humility means as far as research and clinical practice? First of all, I really like that you're bringing up that there is a difference between just uh, speaking about cultural humility amongst our peers and actually practice practicing that in our real lives and how there's a difference in what that looks like. Um, I think a lot of people do think that, oh, if we just talk about these issues, um, like at conferences, or if I attend a, a CE on cultural humility, then I'm I'm doing my job. And it's it's so much bigger than that. You actually have to take in what you have learned and implement that in your daily life in order to really bring about change. So I really like that you bring that up. Um, I think in terms of applying this to our practice, and I will say that it's different between research and practice, like a lot of things are. They're, They're very different realms. Um, I think as far as practice goes, there are best practice guidelines, and those have just been developed over over time. Um, you know, as 
as we have grown as a society and recognize that different cultures have different values and just becoming more aware of uh, the different communities that we're surrounded by. Do you have anything for that? Yeah. Um, so I think that's a great point. It definitely, you know, as behavior analysts, we do always, you know, look to the literature to guide us. And um, just as you said, in recent years, there have been additional, you know, publications and guidelines that have been published to kind of guide our clinical practice. I know in relation to working with trans people and gender nonconforming people, um, Leland and Stockwell, I believe in 2019, published an excellent framework to look at how to shape our own behavior as clinicians to work with transgender and gender nonconforming people. And so looking to the literature in ways like that to make sure we are actually, you know, following some kind of framework, you know, that um, because, of course, if we're going to be engaging in any kind of behavior, we want that to be measurable, um, observable as far as being able to take data and look at that, that, engage in things like, you know, self-monitoring, look for, you know, sort of checklists or look to experts in the field um, when we are shaping our behavior as clinicians or as researchers, you know, or as consultants. So um, look, being able to identify research and look into best practice guidelines and in the absence of that information, you know, because it is more recent in which we've been actually engaging in these conversations as a field, really um, starting to, and for sure we have a long way to go as far as developing guidelines and publishing additional research. But um, the research that can inform our practice, being able to look to that to continue to develop those, and in the absence of that information, really looking to can we look to authorities within, you know, that culture, maybe advocacy groups or look up even just, you know, Google. Google is a great thing, but being able to Google and search up, um, I guess, key important cultural variables that we should take into consideration when working with different populations. Um, so I think, you know, keeping in mind best practice and looking to the literature is a really important important point. Um, so what other considerations as far as practice? I really like what you said about looking to the communities themselves when developing, um, you know, best practice guidelines. Um, and that makes me think of, you know, when we are selecting different goals for different clients we work with, um, whether those may be children or organizations that we are assisting, when we are selecting those goals uh, and for uh, children, different behavioral programs that we may implement, it's important to consider the values and beliefs of the cultures that those individuals or groups may belong to when we are selecting those. Um, and so, you know, not, not just, not just doing a quick Google search of, okay, my, um, my client that I'm working with is a member 
of, you know, the LGBTQ plus community, or they are um, in, you know, whatever culture they may be, but also just having a discussion and saying, like, okay, we're uh, gonna, you know, work on this behavior, and we want to achieve this. Um, Like, does that work for you? Does that meet your needs? Does that meet the values that you hold? And really just bringing in individuals that we are working with into that um, decision-making process. Um, So I think that's a really important aspect of practice is, um, you know, not just taking charge and making all of the decisions yourself, um, but instead communicating frequently with those that we do work with, especially if there is a difference in culture, because we can't assume that the values that we have and the goals that we want to set for our clients are the same as uh, those of the clients themselves. I think that's an excellent point. I love how you bring up the idea of making sure you're engaging in an ongoing discussion um, with the clients and, you know, stakeholders, families themselves, um, because it's true. We really shouldn't be making all of the decisions on our own in that way. Really ever, we want to make sure our programming is socially significant. And if we, we are developing, you know, programming or targeting behavior change, and it's not socially significant to our client with respect to their culture, then that's really a huge failure, you know, on our part as clinicians. And I think that this is really a conversation that can go so deep and being able to, one, acknowledge two, to our clients and to the people we're working with and say, you know, hey, um, we have this cultural difference. Can you give me feedback? Are is, are these programs and are these goals, you know, suited for you? How would you like to change this? Is this really fitting your family and your needs? And not being, you know, too afraid or shying away from acknowledging the fact that we are different and instead embracing and welcoming that fact into the conversation And that's really, you know, the onus is on us to begin that conversation with our clients um, to make sure that our clients and our supervisees, you know, our mentees, our coworkers, that they feel comfortable engaging in that conversation. And so as a behavior analyst with some sort of a power differential in that dynamic, being able to acknowledge and communicate that that's something that you need to take into consideration is important, even if that may seem, you know, a difficult conversation to start. It for sure is an important one. I know that this can affect just to give sort of an applied example, even in our verbiage and the terminology we use, both when talking with our clients as well as in our records and our programming, um, a lot of times as behavior analysts, we have a lot of jargon, you know, a lot of field-specific terms that we use and that are kind of commonplace that might actually have a, you know, sort of loaded connotation within certain communities, given different learning histories, different perspectives and experiences. I know, uh, for example, 
when we are working with racialized people, or racial minorities, non-white populations, specifically, you know, black people, brown people, individuals who may experience systemic oppression based on race, um, and generally may experience being stereotyped unfairly by society as being more prone to violence or targeted by the criminal justice system unfairly and experiencing oppression and violence in that way. A term like aggression, if you have a young child who is Black in school and you are working with that child and engaging to reduce problem behaviors, having a label as aggression on official records might be something that a family, you know, is not comfortable with. And I know that that is um, a discussion I've had in ethical coursework and heard brought up by behavior analysts before as an issue to take into consideration when we are describing and communicating with different people to really take into consideration the effect that our language is going to have um, when we're advocating for the people that we are serving in, you know, within our field, within our practice. Um, and so I think another aspect here is really looking at hiring within organizations and within our clinics. Um, so Kira, do you have any thoughts as far as how to promote diversity and inclusion as far as within organizations and and the people that we are hiring and working with. I do, but before I want to really recognize what you said about, you know, how we verbally categorize the behaviors that we might target. And that is something so simple that I think a lot of practitioners may just gloss over and, you know, not even recognize until it's pointed out um, maybe even by listening to this podcast. Um, so it's such, such a simple, minute point that you made that can be extremely life-changing for a practitioner to acknowledge with a family that they may be working with. And that can really, you know, help a family to feel safe with the practitioner that they are with you know, if that matter is even um, brought up, like, okay, we can use this terminology to describe this, but, you know, how do you feel about that? And is there another term that you would like to use instead? Um, so bravo, that's a really good point. Thank you for making that. Um, yeah, so as far as hiring, um, I, I think there's a lot that has to deal with hiring, um, I definitely think that, you know, when a certain organization or business has values within um, diversity and, you know, truly values representation, um, it's important that individuals working for those businesses um match the values. So if you if you do value diversity, then your staff should be diverse to reflect that value. I, I also think that, you know, when we bring diversity into our businesses and hire um hire individuals to have a diverse staff, 
we are bringing in all sorts of learning histories that can be so useful for the clients that we work with. Um, so when you have diverse staff, you have a number of staff that are equipped to work with clients of different cultural backgrounds. Um, and you have staff that families may be more comfortable working with. Um, so it not only benefits the business themselves to have diverse staff members, but it really helps our clients to see that, oh, like I can relate to this staff member culturally. And that's something that they might not get in other businesses. Um, and so that can really help to form a solid, safe connection between a family and the clients that we're working with in uh, the business. Um, but also, um, like when, when you have diverse staff that adds to the scope of competence within your organization, um, and, uh, when you are working with a family or individual or group that has a different cultural background, um, you know, we can educate ourselves all we want and have all of these different uh, conversations to learn about the values and beliefs of different cultures. Um, but there's there's always going to be a difference um, in our learning histories. And so, um, when you are a practitioner of um, a cultural background that doesn't match the individual or family or group that you're working with, we lose um, scope of confident competence in that area. But if you have a staff member that does have the same learning histories and comes from the same background as that client or group, um, then uh, it's important to refer to them um, to uh, to work with the client in order to provide the best care possible. Um, and that requires a lot uh, as a practitioner to say, okay, I don't know everything that I need to know to work with this client. And it's okay to take a step back and say, but my colleague knows more than me and can provide care for this client that I can't no matter how much I try. And that's a skill that practitioners need to learn and that's where the humility part comes in, where, you know, it's not it's not wrong to say that that's that's a very generous thing and a very ethical thing to say. Um, and just admit that, you know, this is an area that uh, we can't always cover ourselves, but 
it's important to have people around you that you work with that can step in in those scenarios to provide the best care for those who we work with. I think that's an excellent point. I love how you kind of bring in this thread again of cultural humility um, and how we have to, you know, embody that value of humility in our work here um, rather than just assuming that because we've looked into it or because we've, you know, engaged in some form of behavior to work with a given community that at the end of the day, um, if a if a client or someone that we are serving and providing services to is more comfortable working with someone from their same cultural background, whatever cultural background that may be, that we are humble enough to then refer to a different provider and to make sure that we are meeting our clients' needs rather than letting our own, you know, pride or idea of our own capabilities get in the way of that because, you know, ultimately um, we can't, you know, provide everything, no matter how much we learn, we will still be limited in certain aspects just because of, you know, I guess our identities, our social identities, who we are as people. And sometimes there are inherent differentials that are, you know, maintained by systems of oppression that will just make it so that certain people and certain communities, certain clients won't benefit from in the same way from one provider over another based on cultural background. And that is it for sure at times, um, you know, depending on the power differential and the sort of uh, dynamic or system of oppression and the social identities that are relevant on the side of the client versus the provider, um, it can become a, a complex or nuanced situation for sure. But when we can refer out and ensure that our clients are having their needs met with respect to their culture, it is important to be able to recognize our limitations and our own biases and our own you know, privilege that we may hold regarding uh, different aspects of our identity, even as providers who are members of marginalized communities we may hold privilege in other aspects that will sort of hinder the dynamic or progression um, with certain clients with different needs. And so being able to engage in that conversation with our clients, with our employees regarding their needs is really important. And I love how you brought that aspect of cultural humility um, to this conversation in particular. And I think that when we are looking at um, you know, promoting diversity within our organizations. It's also important to make sure that the environment of our organizations, you know, of our clinics, um, are also engaging in the inclusive practices through our, you know, rules and our policies, as well as the actual behaviors our employees engage in and the culture we build is inclusive so that we can maintain the diversity that we hire rather than just you know engaging in tokenism or having individuals of diverse backgrounds but once they arrive to the organization you know are either harmed by the culture or we do not have we're not equipped or providing the resources needed to really thrive and have the 
same recognition and participation that other people may have. And so promoting inclusivity as well as diversity um, and ensuring that we have equity and that we are providing the resources needed to have a really you know, thriving, robust and inclusive culture is important. Um, so do you have any thoughts as far as promoting inclusivity within organizations? I do. And I, I think there are a lot of ways to do that. And it will um, look differently from organization to organization. Um, but I definitely think that a big thing is taking a proactive approach to um, building and maintaining diversity within organizations. So rather than, you know, something pops up um, that is not okay, and then dealing with that as uh, an organization, um, I mean, it should, it should always be dealt with, but that should not be the first instance in which diversity and inclusivity is addressed. So different proactive strategies might be including DEI trainings, um, in general work trainings, um, and using behavior analysis within those trainings. So using some form of BST, whether that's, you know, you're just using rehearsal and feedback, um, you know, on how to um, approach different scenarios um, that may um, question diversity and inclusivity and how best to deal with some ethical issues that might pop up. Um, I think definitely finding, uh, not finding, definitely providing discrimination trainings is very important. Um, and I think kind of going along with that is um, providing examples of microaggressions to staff, um, staff that may not be aware that they might make uh, comments or engage in behaviors that are considered microaggressions, um, but also how to how to point those out and how to acknowledge that um, with uh, within the work culture and and how to move forward in the best way. Um, so I definitely think taking a proactive approach is very important. Um, I also think that. Um, when members of organizations um, engage in discourse surrounding diversity and inclusion, it's important to reinforce that because those can be very awkward conversations to have. And the verbal behavior included in that can get very complex and it can be very daunting. Um, so when there is engagement, I think it's important for people to say like, hey, thank you for talking about this. I know that it can be so hard to talk about, but it's so important for us to. Um, 
And I, I really think that that's very important when members of marginalized communities um, become involved in those conversations because that's what needs to happen. There, there needs to be overlap between different cultural backgrounds in those uh, conversations. Um, and so I think, you know, really reinforcing participation from all individuals, um, whether that is in the form of joining a conversation or um, tossing out an idea on how to, you know, improve something um, that like might benefit a client. Um, I definitely think that needs to be a bigger thing that happens. Um, and kind of going along with that, um, I know that it can be hard to advocate for yourself um, and especially for individuals of diverse cultural backgrounds, that's even harder um, because there is a power struggle. And so I think when self-advocacy does take place, instead of potentially, um, you know, the person on the other end getting defensive, which I think sadly happens, happens more um, than saying, oh my gosh, thank you for bringing that up. That wasn't okay. Um, we also need to reinforce self-advocacy. Um, and sadly that, that does not happen. Yeah. So just to touch on some of the points that you mentioned, I really love how you brought in the idea of proactive strategies and using DEI trainings, specifically, um, you know, harnessing the technologies we do have within behavior analysis to achieve effective trainings. I think so often, you know, and what we see in the literature is that in general traditional DEI trainings, we tend to lack the actual generalization to the natural environment because oftentimes there are sort of these, you know, maybe vague call, vague calls to action, or we're focusing just on teaching certain terminology, like what does diversity mean, what does equity mean, rather than providing specific behaviors that people can engage in to actually build a repertoire of inclusivity within our clinical practice. And so taking that time to actually program effective DEI trainings. So including, you know, rehearsal and feedback and sort of BST or teaching interaction procedure, some sort of variation in that way where we're using an evidence-based strategy to teach how to recognize, you know, say microaggressions or discriminatory speech that occurs in our environment, um, what to do in that situation. What ethical considerations should we take in? Can we engage in role plays? Can we practice, you know, um, working or discussing these things with our clients? Can we actually, you know, develop solid strategies, solid instructions, solid trainings for our employees and within our organizations to promote the actual observable behaviors we want to see? And then engaging in some form of you know, monitoring or taking data 
within our organizations if our staff is actually you know meeting those behavior expectations so that we're not just talking about it but we're actually seeing it because we want this to be observable measurable behavior change not just something that okay we say we value inclusivity we say we value diversity but we're not actually engaging in those behaviors and so additionally here that really looks into the policies and the rules that we have in place in our organizations as well, that we are ensuring and advocating within our organizations that there are policies that protect inclusivity, that promote diversity, that are respecting individuals from marginalized communities, and that not just having policy, but on top of that, there are direct contingencies that employees will contact for either breaking those policies or you know following them, that we are reinforcing self-advocacy, that we are developing a culture that welcomes feedback, that is soliciting this from people rather than having it be sort of only reactionary. And so it's important to not just have um, rules and policy, but also contingencies in place on an ongoing process, you know, not just hire or fire, but how can we actually ensure that these behaviors are reinforced or targeted for reduction, and that that will maintain and generalize outside of simply the training setting. So the next topic to really cover here when we're looking at how to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion within behavior analysis is, you know, the realm of research. I think we are seeing of late a lot more publications from various authors on calls to action and providing sort of guidelines, frameworks to use in clinical practice, which is extremely important as we've talked about. But I think that what we're all noting and seeing, recognizing as a field is that what we're really lacking is experimental evaluations being published. And so for those of us that are engaging in research, you know, I can't urge enough to be looking at how to apply behavior analytic strategies and our interventions to such a socially significant realm to be looking at how can we target discriminatory behaviors within organizations or occurring, you know, maybe even our clients are engaging in our caregivers, stakeholders, how can we target discriminatory behaviors for reduction? And how can we teach inclusive behaviors for skill acquisition? And then ensuring that we are programming for generalization to the natural environment. And so we really are lacking and need more of experimental evaluations for these strategies. And there's such a variety of different applications that we can look at, you know, how to make diversity and inclusion trainings more effective, how to, uh, you know, intervene on discriminatory behaviors and microaggressions that are occurring within the workplace, within our clinical setting. And just to be able to build a literature base, our field is so rich with different technologies that can actually provide the generalization of responding to everyday interpersonal interactions that we need and that other fields may not be as equipped to provide. And so while comparatively, 
say to, you know, the field of psychology, behavior analysis, literature is um, definitely in the beginning and early stages of these topics. There's so much potential for our field to contribute to really just the human knowledge of how to promote these practices and help marginalized communities in a very tangible, real, measurable way. I mean, that is, you know, after all, what behavior analysis is about, what we are best at. And so looking at engineering cultures that are inclusive and that are, you know, extinguish or reduce discriminatory behaviors as we can, um, we really do need to look to our researchers for um, you know, developing and testing these methodologies. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Kira? I really like that point that you made. And I think it's so important for us to really utilize these unique tools that we have um, and the technologies that we have to change behavior. I know that um, at... Um, different conventions and conferences, you know, we do have these calls to actions and we have articles written about, um, you know, different issues that we may encounter saying, you know, this needs to change and this is wrong, but we have the tools to make that change. Um, and it's, it's interesting that, you know, we approach very different target be behaviors in literature and we you know apply various interventions over and over to target different behaviors and those very same interventions can be used to decrease discriminatory behaviors but also increase um inclusive behaviors and so i think it's important for us to not just talk about the issues that we are facing and, you know, call out wrongness, but we also need to utilize what we have uh, to make changes in a better direction. Um, so, yeah, I really, really do like that point that you made. Um, I also think when we're talking about research, we do need to recognize that the field of behavior analysis and many, um, many fields, I would, I would say majority fields that, um, you know, exist in our society, whether we work with them or not, um, are founded by middle-aged, uh, privileged, cisgender, straight, white men. Um, and they, you know, while they have um, done amazing work, those figures aren't representative of who currently works in our field and who we may be providing services for or conducting research with. Ari, do you have anything to add in that area? Yeah, so I absolutely love love that point. And I think, 
you know, as a field, we know more than anyone really about the importance of reinforcement. And so you're so right, Kira, you know, to point out that predominantly our field, like a lot of other fields and sister fields, um, we do have one particular sort of homogenous demographic um, that is reflective of the power distributions we have overall in society, those systems of oppression, because we are seeing that our society maintains and creates barriers to, you know, racialized people, queer people, when accessing higher level educations, these reinforcers that are crucial to survival, housing, healthcare access, you know, all of these things, financial instability, barriers that some communities face that dominant communities, white people, you know, cisgender, straight men are don't have to operate with those barriers. And so really being able to, when we're even something as simple as attending a conference, when we're talking about what individual people can do, if we are seeing research that, you know, preliminary research that is being conducted in these areas to build those connections to maybe as simple as going up after a talk and saying, you know, that was excellent work. This is this is really important. I love what you had to say. You know, can we make a connection, um, especially if you are an individual from a marginalized community to look to others to create community within behavior analysis to, you know, conduct research, disseminate it. And if you are seeing this within your organizations, just like, you know, reinforcing and soliciting participation from individuals, from marginalized communities in that same light, in a research context, reinforcing and, you know, um, soliciting participation from the researchers that are engaging in this already and looking to people conducting research from these communities as, you know, trailblazers, as leaders within this field, because we have so much to go and there is an uphill battle, um, you know, as far as legislation goes and what we're seeing overall, at least in the United States, there are an onslaught of barriers being posed to having conversations around promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so now more than ever, it's very important to make sure we are actively pushing these topics, actively doing our best to reinforce these behaviors within our field and create a culture, at least within behavior analysis, where we are pushing this as a socially significant objective, um, because it certainly is. So if you are interested in hearing more about the harm enacted by behavior analysis and other fields against the LGBTQ plus community, you can check out our last episode, um, really reviewing that history in depth. So we are going to talk a little bit now um, in light of the LGBTQ plus community and Pride Month with the importance of embodying cultural humility and striving to develop uh, cultural competence, if we can use that term, with this specific population. And so I do want to note, um, especially 
given the current climate as far as the policy and legislation being advanced within the country, um, according to the ACLU, um, over 491 anti-LGBTQ plus bills have been introduced in the country, and we're seeing many of them pass, particularly targeting transgender and gender non-conforming people. And so uh, when we are seeing the harm and actually, you know, having advocacy groups recognize and declare here a state of emergency in the country for this population, that as behavior analysis, as behavior analysts, we have an ethical obligation to consider this social significance as we are going through our practice, developing our programming. And so these kinds of bills and the rule governance or behavior that this evokes and the functional altering effects of these policies as far as the behavior of clinicians and practitioners, um, it's extremely dangerous. Even being able to mention and discuss topics about the queer community within school settings or working with children who may be queer themselves, um, queer families, queer practitioners, Um, within our field, it is becoming increasingly dangerous. And so this is really important that we take this into consideration when we're looking at what we can do. And so before I continue, Kira, did you have anything else that you wanted to add at this point? I don't think I have that much. I think you covered that really nicely. Um, Yeah, I we do encounter really hard conversations. Um, and yeah, there's, there's been a lot of turbulence lately and these conversations are very hard to have with, um, clients and stakeholders. Um, and I think it's important for us to recognize that, um, because of these sensitive topics, um, it can, these conversations can be very aversive to individuals that we may be speaking to. Um, And so I think it's important to, number one, recognize that uh, the conversations have become a conditioned aversive, but Moving forward with that, um, I also think it's important when we are working with various um, groups or individuals and stakeholders that we work with them in these um, conversations. And Ari, I really like what you said when we were speaking about this early Um, You had mentioned psychological flexibility. Do you want to kind of explain how you can embed that when we are working with clients and stakeholders and having these conversations? Yeah, absolutely. So I love what you mentioned about how, you know, because of our environment, you know, especially in the United States, with these topics that discussing inclusivity, discussing diversity, that this can be a conditioned aversive. And a lot of times when individuals hold identities of privilege, 
um, there can be a lot of discomfort, shame, um, or at least negative emotions that are evoked when discussing this or taking accountability for one's biases. And so an important skill to be able to cultivate um, is to promote psychological flexibility. And so here with you know, the ACT literature, we can look at promoting things and implementing diffusion strategies, mindfulness strategies, sort of these emotional coping mechanisms that we can implement and teach to reduce experiential avoidance or the avoidance of, you know, negative private events that are evoked by conditioned aversive stimuli. And so having these embedded in our training so that we can really engage in these discussions without or with at least reducing avoidance and trying to counter that steep learning history in which maybe even the topic of DEI, given different political affiliations or different, you know, uh, cultural backgrounds is just so aversive that they are entirely avoided or we get, you know, defensiveness and aspects like that, how we can look at using pairing, um, using caregiver trainings, using these technologies that we have, both with public and private behavior to be able to teach people how to hold themselves accountable, to not see themselves as bad people, but instead to see problematic behavior that needs to be changed. And so promoting psychological flexibility can really be a prerequisite skill for tolerating the trainings that are required to actually build more overt inclusive behaviors. And so, um, you know, I think that's just something that's really important to take into consideration. And when we're looking at sort of, you know, that can't do, won't do dynamic, um, there are some people who may just lack fluency and may be very willing and ready or capable to learn these skills. And then there may be others who are lacking, you know, that motivation or find these topics aversive where we're seeing more of that won't do element. And so being able to actively think and brainstorm as a field, you know, this is not going to be an easy fix. We can't just put a Band-Aid over this, but, um, you know, looking at how can we actually take these behaviors, dissect them, operationally define the required skills in a repertoire that are needed, um, both publicly and privately, we can actually really look at enacting change and small scale change, even with interpersonal interactions, individual interactions, one person within an organization, we can influence these, you know, interlocking behavior contingencies within organizations and promote and create change that has cumulative effects that may ultimately, the hope in conceptualization is to work to disrupt through collective action, these systems of oppression, these systems of harm. And we can only do that from these smaller scale interpersonal interventions. So while we cannot solve systemic oppression, any one person, any one publication, any one organization, any one training, while that will not solve the immense harm and structures that are maintaining these kinds of 
commonplace repetitive microaggressions and violence that we're seeing against the queer community and other marginalized communities. Um, what we can do is do our best to enact small scale change and to ultimately hope to influence and adjust a culture over time to at least reduce the harm enacted in our part of the world and hopefully ultimately disrupt these systems and dismantle them to create more inclusive environments so that this kind of harm is not enacted in such an everyday commonplace sense. And I think it's really important when looking with the LGBTQ plus community as well, that many of us working with neurodivergent populations, um, there is statistically a higher chance that our clients within that population might hold a queer identity, might be a member of a sexual or gender minority. And so taking this into consideration in conjunction with the barriers to accessing healthcare that LGBTQ plus clients and families may face, um, it becomes more important than ever to really embody cultural humility and to do our best to learn what inclusive behaviors we can enact as clinicians and as individuals within organizations to make our environments and our spaces safer for our LGBTQ plus employees, mentors, co-workers, clients, stakeholders, and families. Um, did you have anything else that you wanted to add about that, Kira? I really like that you brought up those last two points. Um, I think with that, it's really just important for us as practitioners and researchers to just simply be aware of the barriers that our populations might face. Um, and I really like, Ari, that you stated that our neuro neurodivergent population is statistically more likely to identify um, as queer or be a member of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and I can also link um, the research supporting that statement in the bio for anyone who is interested in that. Um, but yeah, with the barriers that the LGBTQ plus community faces, um, a huge one um, is related to healthcare and accessing healthcare. Um, and I think part of that is um, members of that community that do live in more rural environments um, where there may be different cultural values um, and different practices. And um, if individuals do have a learning history associated with that and, you know, having very negative experiences attempting to access care that have been affected by their previous environment, um, it's important to acknowledge that and acknowledge that um, they may be hesitant to seek out more care. And so it's just as simple as just supporting them and acknowledging that learning history um, and then continuing to acknowledge that moving forward. Um, I also think, you know, any marginalized group 
um, is going to experience microaggressions. And so it's important to be aware of, of those when we are interacting with any marginalized community that we're working with. Um, and so just, just being aware of the history um, that clients or stakeholders have experienced um, and continuing to communicate with them moving forward um Ari do you have anything to add with that yeah I think that's an excellent point and when we are looking at you know the literature certainly we can link some for you to look and read into this and gain more information but the unfortunate high rate and occurrence of microaggressions amongst healthcare providers is definitely a contributor to individuals within the LGBTQ plus community facing barriers in accessing healthcare. We're seeing, you know, in surveys conducted with LGBTQ plus adults in the United States that many have to actually teach their healthcare providers how to provide adequate care to them because the just lack of information, a lack of training on how to work with this population. And so really making sure that we are knowledgeable about the special barriers that are faced, that we're knowledgeable about what is discriminatory, what is a biasy versus, you know, valid healthcare advice. It's important to take this into consideration because already with financial instability and other barriers that are statistically more likely to occur with the LGBTQ plus population, adding discriminatory treatment from healthcare providers only makes accessing healthcare that much more difficult. And so it's really important to be knowledgeable about these barriers and to actively try to remove them to the best of our ability so that we're ensuring equitable and ethical practice within our field. All right, so moving on to our next point, I wanted to discuss some of the problematic actions that we may encounter in our practice that might be harmful to the LGBTQ plus community, even when clinicians and practitioners may mean well. Um, and one of the major issues that does come up is shaping gender, whether we do that intentionally or unintentionally. And this is a very common thing that occurs. And um, it just has to do with awareness. Um, and a lot of practitioners are just not aware that this is occurring. So um, the ways that we might um, unintentionally shape gender or shape the genders of our clients is by um, labeling certain toys as, you know, quote unquote, boy toys or um, say like, oh, like girls play with dolls, like you should play with dolls. Um, and this seems like such, such an unharmful thing when really it can be because that just automatically starts shaping the gender of our clients by saying, 
um, you know, these items and materials are associated with this gender. And so that is, um, you know, those are the behaviors that we are going to reinforce. And these items and materials are not seen stereotypically with this gender. And so we are going to punish interaction with those items. Um, and then we also see this in the various programs that we um, might, um, words, we might also see this in the different programs that we might run with our clients. Um, and this can just be modeled for our clients daily, even without intending to. So even just in verbal behavior between staff, um, just saying attacked, like, oh, like those like toys are for boys. Our clients do hear what we are speaking about and whether or not we think they do, our verbal behavior does um, shape their gender and their behavior. Ari, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I think it's really important to mention when we're talking about respecting the gender identity of our clients. Um, many of our clients may not be vocal verbal or possess the verbal behavior repertoire to essentially advocate for themselves. And so it's very important to honor and respect preferences. And with that, it's really important to make sure that we are, from the get-go, providing inclusive stimuli that will include in our arrays traditionally gendered toys regardless of whatever the traditional gender may be. So whether that's dolls and race cars, all in the same preference assessment, or we see and respect what toys our clients are gravitating towards and not enact um, our own biases as clinicians as to whether that is appropriate or inappropriate play. And this may be clients wanting to play dress up in clothing that traditionally would not match their assigned sex at birth. And so being able to take these into consideration and ensure that we are not implementing harmful programming, because while we can't say that um, based on the conversion therapy literature, with it being both horribly unethical as well as ineffective, um, what we are likely to do by attempting at least to reinforce um, traditional gender binary roles over the preferences of our clients and introducing any kind of um, sort of a rule or contingency in place that removes these items or makes them unavailable or unacceptable to that client, what we risk doing is creating shame and long-lasting harm that may impact those children as adults um, because we cannot assume the identities that our clients may grow into, the identities of the stakeholders and families. And so it's important to ensure that in our programming, we're using 
inclusive stimuli, whether that be for assessments, um, for also our skill acquisition programs. And when we are teaching pronouns, that we are teaching inclusive pronouns for all genders, rather than following something that might actually cause harm. Um, this can also look as well at tacting gender. I know that in my experience in clinics, I've seen a lot of programs in which stimuli are shown of people and the client is then asked to tact boy or girl according to traditional gender stereotypes. And this is a really a harmful program that it's harmful to the queer community because we can't assume gender based off of appearance alone. And so there are practices that may be commonplace that may seem innocuous to some, but can actually cause great harm. And a, the recent position statement that was released by ABAI in 2022 discusses and outlines how behavior analysts are ethically obligated to respect the identities and be inclusive to the queer community um, in relation to as well condemning conversion therapy. And in these ways, if we were to reinforce certain stimuli along those gendered stereotypes and punish others, that introducing this bias of the gender binary and or a heteronormativity into our programming is an example of conversion therapy. And so we have to be really careful that we're being mindful of these things in our programming and when working with clients and families. So did you have anything else to add to that before we wrap up? Um, no, I believe that you covered that perfectly and I fully agree with everything you said. Um, so I, I am okay with wrapping up as long as you are. Okay, sounds good. So um, wrapping up here, I just wanted to review in general how we can improve our cultural humility and strive towards being culturally competent. Um, and so I think some of the things that we've talked about were reviewing the best practice literature and following guidelines and using inclusive programming and Kira, what are some good examples that you would want to leave our listeners with as far as achieving cultural humility in our clinical practice? I think one big step to take, um, you know, in the process of improving our cultural competence is to know the history of the field that we are working in and the history of the populations and cultures that we may come into contact with. Um, I think, you know, educating oneself about various cultures, that um, that is definitely an ongoing situation and you know as you come into contact with a, a family or a group um, or an organization that shares different cultural 
beliefs and values um, that can, you know, on some level be done in the moment, but we should always be keeping in mind the history of behavior analysis, um, you know, in terms of conversion therapy and uh, various ethical issues regarding research and in practice, both within our own field and other related fields. So I think just acknowledging the history of ABA, um, but also um, knowing some of the history of cultures um, or groups that we may come into contact with is a big part. Um, I also think a big thing is just being open to discussions um, when those do come up or initiating discussions with our peers and coworkers. Um, I think a lot of the time people are scared to talk about major issues that we encounter. And if we're too scared to talk about those issues or talk about differences, then we can't really educate ourselves and others and we can't grow and move forward. So just taking that step to talk, um, I think is a a large leap in the process. Um, and kind of going along with that, when we are educating ourselves, it's important to put that responsibility on ourselves. So rather than, um, you know, it, it's always important to seek out educational resources, but rather than putting that responsibility on um, individuals of different cultural groups or people of color or people of the LGBTQ plus community, we need to take that responsibility and not say, hey, tell me, tell me everything there is to know about you and your culture and your experiences, because um, that's, that's not the right way to educate ourselves and that's not the right way to become culturally competent. Um, so I think those are big things um, to be aware of when looking at cultural competence and developing that. Um, do you have anything to add for that, Ari? Yeah, so I think that in general, when we're looking at improving our cultural competence, you know, as we've said, um, making sure that we're keeping up with the current literature, best practice guidelines, educating ourselves as far as current events and looking to community organizations and order to get our information rather than putting that onus on individual people and to also be able to tolerate the difficult conversations and the difficult emotions like discomfort or guilt or shame or sadness or anger that may arise when engaging in these really nuanced, difficult topics, but that we are able to tolerate them so that we can 
engage in observable, measurable behaviors that produce meaningful outcomes on our small scale interactions within our clinics, within our organizations, with our coworkers and our clients and families, as well as ultimately contributing to disrupting a system that is enacting harm against so many people. So kind of to conclude, um, we just wanted to emphasize that we are all human and humans make mistakes constantly and it's okay to make mistakes. But the important thing is moving forward from those mistakes and taking accountability for our behavior and acknowledging that you know, we may have said the wrong thing or done the wrong thing. And from there, we can educate ourselves and change our behavior for the better and respond better in the future. Um, so that's the number one thing I would take with, uh, with everything that we've said is it's okay to mess up, but what matters is how you move forward. Um, so lastly, we wanted to thank you all for listening. We had so much fun recording this episode and we really hope that you found it to be as fun as we did and that you found it informative. As we did mention earlier, any and all sources that we have referred to will be listed in the bio for this podcast. Um, so please go check those out. Um, they are very good articles and statements to read. Um, so yes, please check those out and we hope you all have a great week.